Thank you very, very much. How's everybody doing this morning? Come on, you can do better than that. How's everybody doing this morning? Fantastic, fantastic. Like my wife said, that is my lovely wife. I am Gino Allison. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so delighted to be here with you this morning, uh, worshiping the Lord together. Um, and welcome to the South Suburban Vineyard Church. Special welcome to anybody who's visiting with us for the very first time. Welcome to the South Suburban Vineyard Church. Also, welcome to anybody who's listening to us through our website or through podcasts, through iTunes. You also are welcome to come and worship with us here on Sunday morning. Well, this morning I had the great privilege uh, to continue our sermon series that we've been working through, the sermon series that we've been calling Marriage, Relationships, and the Families. How many of you have enjoyed the, the series so far? So just a, just a few of you. We'll, we will try harder, I promise you. But no, we've gotten a lot of feedback from the sermon series that we've been in, and we designed this series uh, to, to deal with uh, subjects like marriage, relationships, family. We're going to talk about dating, raising kids, and everything in between. And as we focus on this information, the goal throughout this whole series, as we said from the very beginning, the goal isn't to give you ammunition to help you fix the people around you. Rather, the goal is to give you information, tools to help you work on yourself to help you deal with your own issues, to help you deal with your own dysfunctions, to help you deal with the stuff that keeps you stuck in life so that you can be a functioning person in whatever circle you find yourself in. The goal of this series is to help you work on you because God wants you to work on you. One of the saddest, uh, I must say, one of the saddest sights to see, and I speak for myself when I say this, is to see Christians just sort of limping through life. If you've if you ever known somebody who's a, who claims to be a committed Christian, but when you look at their life, they don't seem to have any joy, they don't seem to have any peace. You look around the landscape of their life, and their relationships are fractured and broken, all sorts of besetting sin in their life, financial difficulty, debt up to their eyeballs. It's just a really sad sight to see. And as a Christian leader and as a person who's spent my whole life around the church, I've seen lots of people who just seem very broken Christians, and it seems counter to what I understand the power of God, what the power of God does in a person's life, to see people just sort of limping through life. And part of the trouble that I have when I see these Christians sort of limping through life is because I have a fundamental belief, a fundamental understanding that Christians should have the best lives. I firmly believe that the Christians should have the best lives, and I feel like Christians should be the best at all the things that matter. In other words, we should be the best husbands, men, Christian men. We should be the best wives, Christian women. I don't put myself in that category. I don't want to confuse you this morning. We sh- you should be the best wives, Christian women. You should be the best, if you're, a, if you're a boss or a supervisor, Christians should be the best bosses and supervisors. You should be the best employees, the best coworkers. You should be the best friends. Christians should be the best neighbors in the whole neighborhood. The quality of a Christian's life should be far better, far superior than those of their worldly counterparts. But sadly, that is not true. Sadly, that's not true. But I think the Bible tells us, and if we look at Christians who are doing it right, the quality of life is better than those around them. And I think the quality of life is good because the quality of their relationships are good. You look at the quali- somebody who has a high quality of life. I'm talking about, I'm not talking about the trappings of this world. I'm not talking about the house on the hill 
in the three or four cars in the garage. I'm talking about the stuff that really matters. You look at somebody with a high quality of life, you examine that person's life, their relationships are more than likely intact. So if you want the high quality of life, if you want to be that Christian superstar that is better at the things that matter than the world, then you want your relationships to be intact. And I submit to you today that your relationships cannot be intact if we don't learn to communicate. Poor relationships in our lives often point back, almost always point back, to poor communication. I'll say that again. Poor relationships, which lead to a poor quality of life, almost always trace their way back to poor interpersonal communication between the people that share your space. And that's what I want to talk about this morning, communication. I want to talk about communication. And communication is simply defined as successful, the successful conveying or sharing of ideas and feelings. I was surprised to find successful in the definition. Communication, the successful conveying or sharing of ideas or feelings, and I will add from one person to the next. And the reality, friends, is if we can't figure out how to do that successfully, then our relationships will be broken and our quality of life will be broken as well. I remember when I first started dating my wife, I liked just about everything about her, but one of the things that I quickly discovered is that we were very incompatible when it came to communication. I mean, I would say something and she, you know, would hear something completely different, and that hasn't altogether changed in the present day, and we've been together some nine years, but it was so frustrating to me that I thought, you know, this is an insurmountable obstacle right here. The, the, the difference between us, communication-wise, is something that will definitely sink this ship. And I went to, uh, to talk to a friend of mine who had been married for many, many years, and the person that I trusted, and I said, listen, is this an insurmountable ob- obstacle? I don't think I can marry this woman. I love virtually everything about this woman, but this communication thing is, is, is insurmountable. And he encouraged me uh, to press through it, that what I was dealing with was not a unique situation. But I'm just trying to convey to you the significance, at least to me, of a communication major. That's what I went to school for. And when we could not communicate, I thought, man, this is going to be a miserable, miserable marriage. It hasn't been, by the way, because I think we've learned to sort of work through our, <laughs> we've learned to work through our thing. But the, I'm trying to highlight the, the significance and the importance of communication. If we don't get this right, now, let me, Keep in mind, I'm not talking about just marriages. I'm talking about every relationship, all across the board. Casual relationships, coworker relationships, boss, employee relationships, everything. We're talking about communication in general. And if you don't get this right in your life, the quality of your life will be very poor. Your relationships will come unglued, and you will be a miserable person. And some of you, even before I begin today, you just look over the, excuse me, look over the landscape of your life, and you say, man, things are a mess. And when you look closer, You can pinpoint communication, particularly poor communication, as the culprit. So this morning, I want to give you helpful tips for healthy communication. Helpful tips for healthy communication. And we're talking about all areas of our life, family, social, work, marriage, every single thing. And this is not a scenario-driven sermon. I just want to tailor your expectations for this morning. This isn't a scenario-driven sermon where I tell you what to say in given circumstances, where I give you sort of grassroots things. Okay, if somebody says this, then you say this. If somebody does this, then you... This is not that type of sermon. This is practical, godly advice 
that is directly geared toward increasing your quality of life by incre increasing the value and the quality of your relationships directly through increasing the quality and the thoroughness and the effectiveness of your communication with the people that share your space. Before I begin, this is a very important subject, so I just want to invite the Lord's presence as I begin to share this morning. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for the, your truth. I thank you so much, Lord, for this body of believers that has gathered this morning to hear your word and to understand, Lord, what your heart is for us. But we know that communicating with one another is very difficult. And we, we invite your presence today. We seek your wisdom and your guidance to help us get this right. Lord, would you put power on these words that you've given me to speak this morning? Would you move me, would you move the preacher out of the way this morning so that your love and your truth can shine through? We ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. So before we begin today, I think that the important thing that we do whenever we study the scriptures, whenever we look at any subject that's pertinent to our life and quality of life, particularly trying to understand how God wants us to live uh, our life, it's important that we put first things first. I've said that over and over and over again. When you start putting the second thing first or the 15th thing first, life just becomes unglued. Things become all out of whack. So I want to start this morning giving you the first tip, and I want, to put, I want you to put this like the number one, at the number one spot as it relates to communication. And the number one tip I have for you is to be filled with the Spirit of God. Be filled with the Spirit of God. You may say, wait a minute, preacher, I thought this was a sermon on communication. Maybe you got your pages mixed up with some other sermon. Not at all. The first tip for healthy communication, whether it's at work, whether it's at home, whether it's between you and your children, you and your friends, the first tip, the first step in the process, the first step in the life of a committed Christian is to be filled with the Spirit of God. And if you want me to put that in a plainer way, I'll say this, be a Christian for real. Be a Christian for real. It amazes me how people reportedly come to Jesus, how people reportedly give their life to Jesus and change absolutely nothing significant about their lives. They still keep their same broken sexual habits. They still listen to and watch whatever they please, regardless of any sort of um, uh, admonitions or encouragement by Jesus to do otherwise. We say whatever we want to say. We treat people the same way. It amazes me how people are not changed when they encounter Jesus. Romans chapter 12, Paul says, submit your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Let him change you. In other words, let him transform you by what? Changing the way you think. So when Jesus moves in, he changes the landscape of our life. He changes how we think. He changes our whole way of looking at life. And it's remarkable. It's staggering how many of us committed Christians don't change a single thing when Jesus moves in. You have to understand that when we accept Jesus in our life, when we do it for real, there's a measure of God's spirit that's deposited on the inside of us. Each and every one of us gets deposited in us a measure of God's spirit. And the reason God does that, is he puts something inside of us that testifies to who Jesus is. It testifies to the character of God. It calls us all the way back. It keeps, whenever we want to tug away and go our own way and do our selfish, sinful thing that we're wired to do from birth, 
The Spirit of God, if it's alive and active in us, it always draws us back. It always reminds us, hey, that's, that's not like God's character. God's character says this. God's character would do that. Jesus would want you to do this. This is what God says in his word. The spirit of truth is deposited in us so that we can live differently, so we can love differently. But here's the, here's the real deal. Just because you got a measure of the Holy Spirit deposited in you when you became a Christian doesn't necessarily mean that you will activate it. Doesn't necessarily mean that you will listen to it doesn't mean that you won't crowd it out with something that's louder and more pressing to you. You also hear us ask, Lord, give us more of your spirit. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. We say more Holy Spirit. And some of you say, what are you asking for? What, you want, what are you asking for? Why are you saying that? Lord, because we want more of the spirit. Sometimes I look at me and say, man, there's too much Gino in here. I'm messing up my relationships. I'm doing stuff I'm not supposed to do. Listen, this is too much. Gino, I need more of your spirit, Lord. And as your spirit comes in me, it displaces the negative. It just displaces the me that I want to be when left to my own devices. So that's why I say be filled with the spirit. The other important thing to consider is that when the spirit comes in, when Jesus moves in, he brings his stuff with him. You ever moved someplace but left your stuff behind? You might have. But that's not what we normally do. No, when you move in, you bring your stuff with you. You set up the place how you want to set it up. And I explained to people over and over, that's what Jesus does. When Jesus moves in, he brings his stuff. And he's moving your stuff out. And when Jesus moves into your life, he brings what we commonly say is the fruit of the Spirit. The evidence that the Spirit is in your heart, the evidence that Jesus has moved in. And Paul outlines this perfectly for us in Galatians. He says, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit. In other words, the Holy Spirit brings this stuff with him when he moves into your heart. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. So let me say it again, when the Spirit moves in, when Jesus moves into your heart, he brings this stuff with him. And some of you, if you took a close look at your life, you say, man, I don't have hardly any of that stuff at work and alive in my life. And you take a further look and you say, well, this, none of this stuff is really coming out of me. And you take a closer look and you say, none of the people that I interact with and communicate with benefit from any of this stuff that's supposed to be alive and working in my life. And you go, dang, that's why my relationships are fractured. That's why everything that comes out of my mouth is venomous. It's hurtful. It's misunderstood. Because the Spirit's not at work in my life. Now, I notice when I look at this list, out of these nine things that are listed, and I'm sure there are more, Seven of these nine things directly impact other people. I think all of these, you know, significantly impacts the people in our world, the people that share our space. But seven of these nine things, love, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and the big one at the end, self-control, that's for somebody else. Those things benefit somebody else. When God's spirit is alive and working in you. You can start with the self-help books if you want to. You can start with Dr. Phil's top ten list of things to do to increase your communication if you want to. You can start with that stuff that mama told you or daddy told you. But I'm telling you, if you want to fix this in a deep and abiding sense, you need to be filled with the spirit of God. 
you need to take seriously the fact that when Jesus moves in, he wants to urge you to get packing and he wants to activate his spirit and all the things that he brings along with him so that you can interact with other people in a way that is healthy and helpful and not what you've been doing and not what you've been getting. To be filled with the spirit of God. How many of you are filled with the spirit of God? How many of you look at that list and you say, man, those things are at work in my life in some significant measure? My guess is that many of us would say, man, I'm missing some of those things. I'm missing some of those things. And I think when you put all that together, especially when you look at who Jesus is, who God really is, we see that everything about God is totally real, it's totally honest, and it's totally true. I'll say that again. The essence of God's character, everything we see when we look at God is totally real, it's totally honest, And it's totally true, which brings me to my next tip. Say what you mean and mean what you say. We've talked about being filled with the Spirit of God. We've identified that as number one. But listen, a real close second is say what you mean and mean what you say. Now, I'm not talking to you people who have used this as a license just to just be a, a jerk, to just say whatever you want. To have no filter on, you know, between your, your mind and your mouth. I'm just keeping it real. I just keep it real. And you're spewing venom. You're just saying whatever you want to say. You're hurting people. I'm not talking about that. I used to be that way. And I just thought, I thought that was justifiable because I was being honest. I was being real. And I was just being a jerk. I was misusing my voice. Yeah, I was thinking I had thoroughly thought about what I wanted to say. Yeah, I was... I thought I was right most of the time. Some people might argue with that. But it didn't matter because of how I chose to say it. It didn't matter because I didn't let God's fruit govern my speaking. But in a very true and real sense, I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to beg you. I'm going to plead with you, husbands, wives, parents, coworkers, bosses, supervisors, friends, neighbors, say what you mean and mean what you say. I make it my business to train the people around me, the people that share my space, to expect honesty and truth. And that's not an easy thing to do. I make it my business to train the people around me to expect honesty and truth, the real deal, all of the time. I do this at every turn in my life, at least I try to. In my marriage, from day one, I want it to train my wife to know, listen, if you ask me a question, I'm going to give you an answer, an honest one. I, I mean, did you, did you like that, you know, did you like that, what I made for dinner? <laughs> Baby, actually, I did not like it. And please don't make that again. Now, that sounds harsh. And I'll explain why it sounds harsh in a minute. But listen, I didn't want her to ever make that again. I didn't like it. I, I didn't like it. Maybe does this, this, this make me look heavy? You know, as a matter of fact, it does. And I saw a commercial where the woman came out. She said, does this make me look fat? And the dude was like, you betcha. I'm not, I'm not suggesting you be callous or coarse with it. But listen, what, what was I doing? I was training her to understand that when you come to dip from this well, you come seeking answers from me, I want to give you the real deal. 
Listen, if you rather me tell you that everybody who you see that day think that? You rather me tell you that that dish is not that delicious and you take that to the you know, work potluck and be the subject of the water cooler conversation? Listen, we, this is our job to have each other's back. The person you're married to, the person you're friends with, your children. Train the people in your space to expect from you the real deal, the truth, that you will say what you mean and mean what you say. Do this in my family life. I do this in the church life. I'm responsible for training the leaders that lead in this church, whether it's a person who's training to preach, whether it's my worship leaders, whether it's my hospitality coordinator, my child care coordinator, my tech coordinator. You can ask any of these people, and we have some very real conversations. Very real conversations, and they're not all pleasant. Not all, you don't always have a bubbly feeling afterwards. But I promise the people in my space, you will always know where you stand with me. If you want to know, if you ask me something, you will always want, you will always find, you always get the real deal from me. Because why? I'm training the people to expect truth from me. David comes and says, hey, man, can you give me your feedback on, on that sermon that I preached? I, w- I want to know. From day one, if you ask him, I've told him exactly what I thought. And I ask him, hey, man, what did you think of that sermon? What did you think of this decision that I made? And he'll tell me, I, I, I wouldn't have done it that way. Or I thought it was a little long, you know, or I, I didn't, that point didn't quite make sense. That's my kind of guy. I'm going to go to him every time because I know, regardless of what it is, good or bad, my man right here is going to tell me. My friend Mark back there is the same way. I, these two guys, and I'm just using them as an example, I, I go to them often because I know that they're going to sugarcoat anything. They're going to tell me exactly how they see it, and I need that in my life. You need that in your life. The people that share your space, they need that from you. But it's hard to do that if you've not done that. <laughs> you know, it's hard to start that midstream. They're like, well, why, why are you so mean all of a sudden? In other words, they're asking, why are you so honest all of a sudden? I'm going to encourage you to start today to train the people in your space to expect honesty and truth, that you will say what you mean and that you will mean what you say. Some business circles call this creating a culture of candor. And it truly is a culture. You know, repeated behavior, systematic behavior, it becomes a culture in an organization. It becomes a culture in a family. It becomes culture in a house of worship. It becomes a culture among friends and in relationships. And if you want to do your relationships a favor, if you want to improve your quality of life, if you want to do this life the way Jesus called us to do it, you will create a culture of candor, which means saying things like it is. One of my biggest pet peeves, man, is that when people, when people interpret what I say, when they go to great lengths to add a, a complicated meaning to something that I've said, I say, listen, what, what did I say to you? I tell people all the time, especially guys that I meet, whether I'm out and uh, meeting people or new, new guys that come to church, I give them my business card. I say, listen, man, if you need to talk or pray or discuss something, call me anytime. Call me anytime. If I'm busy, I won't pick up the phone, but I'll call you back. And they say, oh, okay, Pastor, thanks, right? See them three weeks later. All sorts of hell is broken loose in their lives. They needed somebody to talk to, and they didn't call. I said, listen, man, why didn't you call me? 
well, I figured you'd be busy, and, you know, I just didn't want to bother you. I said, what did I tell you, man? Didn't I tell you to call me? So I get so frustrated, and this happens over and over in my life. I get so frustrated, and then I, finally I'm starting to realize that our culture trains us to not trust what people say. Oh, come on over. Yeah, my pool is your pool. You can just use it anytime. <laughs> oh, yeah, my door is open. Listen, my fridge is your fridge. Yeah, dude, we'll get together. We'll do lunch. You never see the person again. You walk, in fact, you walk across the street when you see him coming because you don't want We don't mean what we say. And because there's a culture of people saying things that they don't mean, trying to, I guess, be nice and to be social and to be cordial, what happens? There's a culture of dishonesty. There's a culture of glad-handing and just empty rhetoric that bleeds into our marriages. It bleeds into how we raise our kids. It bleeds into the fabric of how we do life. And the word of God says, Jesus from his very own mouth says, listen, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. There's some people I, can't, I don't trust them. I, I, I don't trust them at all. I don't count on them for anything. Their yes means maybe. Their no means maybe. Because there's just this culture of loose lips and just saying whatever you feel like you need to say to get out. Oh, yeah, be there at 5? Okay, yeah, I'll be there at 5. And here's 7 o'clock rolls around and somebody's traipsing in like it's, you know, 4.45. Jesus says, let your yes be yes. When you tell your kids, hey, you were the best one out there, let them be the best one out there. When you tell your wife, listen, that, that dress looks beautiful on you. Let it look beautiful on her. When somebody asks you, hey, did I upset you when, that, when I said that? Oh, no, it's fine. Let that be the case. Say what you mean and mean what you say. I just quoted the passage of Scripture where Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. The, the context of that Scripture is Jesus says, listen, you don't have to swear by all this stuff and make all these oaths and make all these deals and have these complicated contracts. Listen, why are we falling so far from just shaking a person's hand and says, I'll be there and then show up? Why have we drifted so far from just saying yes and that meaning yes and no and that meaning no? Listen, we are far from that. If you've ever bought a house, if you've ever had to sign that stack of papers, we're far from it. If you've ever bought a car or applied for a loan, right? We're far from it. And some of you, as you examine the fabric of your relationships, you husbands and wives, you know that there is, there's an undercurrent of dishonesty. There's an undercurrent. I'm not even talking about right now. I'm not even talking about blatant lies and covering up. I'm not talking about that right now. We'll deal with that. I'm just talking about this undercover. You know, you've heard the white lies. Well, this is a white sort of current of dishonesty that is shrouded in this veil of niceness and cordialness and sort of desiring to get along. It's a trick. It's a lie from the enemy. It's a lie from the enemy. Because dishonesty in any form will always corrupt. Dishonesty in any form will always, always corrupt. Proverbs 11.3 says, The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. 
the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. And what does that word duplicity mean? It's the, it's the exact opposite of integrity. Duplicity, a doubleness. You're two-faced. You, you, you're saying one thing, but you mean another. You're presenting something one way, but you are something else. And it takes a lot of work to be duplicitous. Duplicity robs you of energy. It takes a, well, you got to remember what you said. Why, what did I say? Did I say that I like that dress? Is this the dish that I lied about? What is Jesus driving us toward? What does good communication desire? It desire integrity. Integrity, which just means sameness. You're the same person there, then you are there, then you are there. You are the same person in church as you are you know, at work. You have the same current of values and principles that govern your life every single place. And you say what you mean, and you mean what you say. In other words, what's represented on the outside for a person that walks in integrity is exactly what that person feels and thinks on the inside. Now, this doesn't mean you have to be, you know, you, you get to not be thoughtful when you speak. Doesn't mean that you don't have to be sensitive and carefully choose your words. Doesn't mean that you have to just communicate this sort of unedited thoughts all over the place. No, that's destructive. I'm just saying work really hard to maintain a measure of freedom from duplicity. Work really hard to say what you mean and to mean what you say. And this word integrity here, it deals directly with blatant deceit. You want to destroy your marriage? You want to corrupt communication forever? Just keep lying. Just keep lying. Just keep misrepresenting things. Just keep saying that you were somewhere when you were someplace else. Just keep lying to people. Just keep lying to your spouse. Just keep lying to your kids. The truth will be found out. It's going to be found out. And if the person or the people aren't sharp enough to figure it out, Jesus will find it out. And the word says that every single lie will have their place in the lake of fire. Listen, you don't have to interpret that scripture. That meaning is right on the low shelf for you to grab it. Root out of your life dishonesty and deceit. There are places in my life and in my marriage where I wasn't completely honest, and even though I'm forgiven, even though we've moved on, even there's a lot of space between that uh, event and now I'm still suffering the consequences of that dishonesty. I'm still suffering the consequences of it today. This is real talk. And some of you, the secrets and lies between your marriage, your, your spouses, between your friendships and your relationships is, is the culprit. You've not acted in integrity and with integrity. We're talking about integrity. We're talking about saying what you mean and meaning what you say. I think the important thing, um, specifically as we talk about communication, because a lot of our communication centers around conflict. We're different people trying to, you know, uh, interact and communicate with people with a different family background, with different systems and different principles and different understandings for certain words and phrases. So there's always going to be some conflict in our lives. And a lot of times the conflict results in anger. It makes you angry. 
So a lot of times you have to communicate while you're angry, and some of us just don't manage that well, right? Some of us don't manage that well, especially if you're not wired to be a person of honesty, truthfulness, and complete integrity, right? Because what happens when you're angry? The emotions get running, there's this white-hot anger, and guess what? You're saying anything and everything. You're saying anything and everything. And a lot of times, we just say things that will cut, that will hurt, that will tear down. What can I say that will really put a, put a, put a nail in this coffin? That will really, I and mean, you're not even thinking, you're just, just going. And when you've not been training yourself to be a person of integrity, to say what you mean and mean what you say, you get real reckless when you're angry. You get real loose with your lips when you're angry. And what happens? You say things that you don't mean. You say things that you don't mean. Now, why is this so important, Pastor? Why is this so important? Because you can't take those words back. You kissed and you've made up. You went out for ice cream, but you still said those words. And a sorry or I'm sorry, well, I didn't mean that. That doesn't erase those words, does it? Some of you can recall right now things that are spoken to you in anger. You can reach way back to your childhood and get them. They're as real as the day they were spoken. Because you said in anger what you didn't mean. You spoke some words in anger, and you didn't say what you mean. You didn't mean those things. Yeah, you may have meant them that second, but if you dissect, you said, that's not true. You're not lazy. You're not worthless. This is what you're saying. But you said those things in your anger. And this is why I say that a great tip for healthy communications, you want the quality of life to improve, you want the relationship to improve, you've got to mean what you say. You've got to be thoughtful. And when you train yourself to do that outside of conflict, you exercise that discipline almost instinctively when you get angry. I don't want you to miss what I'm saying here. So I'll say it again. When you work hard to exercise the discipline of being thoughtful and saying only what you mean, that kicks in when you become angry and you, all, you, you, you use some restraint, which reaches all the way back to God's spirit and his character living in your life because the biggest thing on that list, in my opinion, is the self-control. James says, and I think James chapter 1, listen, if you can control your tongue, you'll be better off. If you can control the stuff that you say, man, how much would your life improve? Self-control, being a person of integrity, being filled with God's spirit, that, that, that helps us when we get angry. It disciplines us. It guides us. It leads us. Ephesians 4 says, uh, don't sin by letting your anger control you. And some of you have heard it said, as, be angry, but don't sin. Listen, God doesn't despise anger. Sometimes there's righteous anger. Sometimes if you didn't get mad about some stuff, people wouldn't understand that they've stepped on your toes. Or they didn't, they've stepped out of bounds. So anger is not a sin. It's just important that we don't sin when we're angry. We don't take it a step too far, which brings us to our next and final very important tip. We cannot skip over these. The first two have been vitally important, but we can't, absolutely cannot skip over this last tip. And if we don't master this, we will be in a world of trouble, is that deal with conflict. We've talked about being filled with God's spirit. We're talking about saying what we mean and mean what we say. We get to the final and very important tip that I have for you today is deal 
with conflict. I just referenced the Ephesians 4 passage, verse 26, and don't sin by letting anger control you, but don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, is what that second half of that verse says. And how many of us have completely, blatantly, recklessly ignored that command? Shelby's the only one honest enough to raise his hand. Okay, there we go, now we go. Be angry. It's okay to be angry, to be righteously angry. Jesus was righteously angry as he cleared the temple of the money changers. He expressed righteous anger all the time. It's not wrong to be angry, but we cannot sin. And when we find ourselves angry, when we find ourselves in conflict, when we find that we've been wronged, it's a good practice, it's a necessary practice to deal with conflict. This is one of the highest values in my life. Any of my leaders that serve under me, uh, anybody who shares a uh, common space with me, my wife will tell you this is one of my highest values. We deal with conflict right away. Right away. Right away. For the, those of you who passive-aggressively deal with uh, conflict or you try to run from it and avoid it, I will ask you to reflectively ask yourself, well, how's that been working out for me? Have I experienced a lot of closure in my life? Are my relationships just free and there's newness and there's an excitement in my relationships? I will answer for you. You probably say no if you answer honestly. Because conflict, when left um, unsettled, unresolved, it will destroy the fabric of any relationship. Any relationship. There will be an undercurrent of that thing that you've not spoken about. And it will run through your life, it will corrupt every fruit you encounter, pleasant or unpleasant, it will complicate your life in unimaginable ways. And what happens when you don't deal with conflict over and over and over, different conflict after different conflict that's been compounded by the previous conflict, that's been compounded by the last two or three things that you haven't dealt with, you've got yourself a mess. You've got yourself a mess. And I place a high value on this because God places a high value of this. You say, Pastor, give me a scripture to stand on. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. It says, so if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar, go and be reconciled to that person, then come and offer your sacrifice to God. Let me explain what's happening here. The Lord says, listen, if you are coming into the house of God to worship, and in those days, they brought an act of uh, 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 something to sacrifice or something to offer unto the Lord. Listen, you're coming into the house of worship to do your duty as a citizen of the kingdom to worship me, which is what you're on this earth to do, which God places an extremely high value on it. The Lord says, listen, stop your worship for a second. Stop something as important as worship and go deal with the conflict between you and another person. Go communicate with that person. Go rid yourself, rid your relationship of the thing that, that, that's, that's unsettled between the two of you. And I like especially how the scripture puts this. If you are at the altar, you go there to worship, and you remember suddenly that someone has something against you. Didn't say whether you were right or wrong. Didn't say, and you remember you did something for, uh, to somebody. It says if you're there worshiping and you realize that somebody has an issue with you, the Lord puts that up on us. He puts it up on me to go to that person and deal with it. 
He doesn't say, well, listen, cross the street when you see him as to not deal with it. When you see it, just say, you know, everything's fine. It was just, just a misunderstanding. He doesn't say glaze over it. He says, deal with it head on. Go to that person before you come in here and lift hands to me. Before you come in here, pretend like the relationships that I've given you in your life are intact. Go and deal with the issue. Go and deal with the conflict. And Jesus often highlights the extremes to let us know that it includes the lesser things. In other words, if he's saying, if somebody has something against you and you have to deal with it, you certainly better drop your offering. You certainly better not enter the house of the Lord. You certainly better not do anything else before you deal with that issue. Dealing with conflict. And this is hard stuff. It's hard even to listen to. Why? Because we're wired. Just like we're wired to be dishonest and to try to be nice and not to say what we mean and not to mean what we say, we're just wired to avoid conflict. In fact, very few of us are naturally wired to want to pursue conflict. And for those of us who are wired, we get a little too excited about conflict. I wish somebody would. They better, they have one more time to look over here, and I'm going to go talk to them. Settle down, okay? Get some more of that fruit of the Spirit in you, some of that patience and that gentleness, okay? But we're wired, man, to avoid conflict. And I don't use this word very often, but it's so stupid. It's so stupid. And if your senses are offended when I say that, okay. It's just ridiculous. Avoiding conflict. Why do we do it, though? It's hard because a conflict is hard. It's challenging. It's difficult. We'd rather stuff it someplace where we, where we don't have to look at it. But guess what? That room that you're stuffing everything into, that's not, a, that's not an incinerator room. That's not a garbage disposal. That's a closet. And there's only so much space in there. And you're going to have to sort through those things one day. And one day you're going to go to put that one thing in there and everything else is going to come spilling out because you haven't dealt with it. But this is how we're naturally wired. We're naturally wired to avoid conflict. And why is that? I think the answer is this. Avoiding conflict is often rooted in fear. It's rooted in fear. Fear of what? Our past history. And listen, last time I said something to that person, they almost bit my head off. And I said, I just want to keep the peace. I don't want to disrupt. I don't want to disrupt. Things seem to be working well, but they're not working well. There's this thing between you. And you got to share the same house. You got to share the same bed. You got to be in the same space. It's, just, it's not okay. You're not disrupting anything. The only thing to do is fix what you've broken or fix what's been broken. And some of us just don't want to deal with what we've done. We know when we get down to the bottom of it, we've screwed up. We've messed up. We've opened our mouth too wide. We've offended people. And if we deal with the conflict, that means we're dealing with what we've done wrong. That means we have to come to grips to what we've said or what we've done. And some of us are just not wired to apologize and to come clean and to say that we're sorry. Because we have this fear of doing that, we would just rather it be awkward between two people. We would just rather there be this sort of thing floating between us that goes unresolved and unspoken. I'm glad that 2 Timothy, though, breaks down this whole 
idea that we're this fear-driven response to dealing with conflict. First, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. Another version says of a sound mind, but I like the self-discipline. Right? Because it speaks to that whole self-control portion. The self-control that restrains you from doing things that you shouldn't do. And it pushes you to do the things that you should do, particularly dealing with difficult circumstances and, and, and sleeping in the bed that you've made, particularly dealing with the conflicts that you have done. For God hasn't given us the spirit of fear. We shouldn't be governed by fear and timidity when it comes to conflict, especially when the Lord pushes us. He encourages us. He drives us to deal with those things. He hasn't given us the spirit of fear, but he's given us power. Power to do what? Power to deal with a difficult personality. Power to deal with our own sin. Power to overcome this resistance we have to doing what we know we should do. He's given us power. He's also given us love. Listen, love. This is what we're here for, right? To love God, love people unconditionally. To bear with one another according to love. To push past people's faults, right? This is what God has given us. He's given us power. He's given us love. And he's given us self-discipline. All in an effort to do what we need to do in life to press into those things, press into those places where we need to work. So under the umbrella of dealing with conflict, here are some things that you ought to keep in mind, some helpful tips. Keep short accounts. Keep short accounts. Keep short accounts. And this is just a phrase that we use among our leadership and as we shape the culture of this church. Listen, don't let things just stretch out and go on and on and on and pretend like they're not there. Keep short accounts. Don't let too much time pass between the incident and when the incident gets talked about and when the incident gets dealt with. It's foolish to let things stretch out. Keep short accounts. Now, all of the time, it might not be appropriate to say something in a moment. I'm a, I'm a firm believer that we, you know, praise in public and we critique or we have difficult conversations in private. So if somebody does something, very rarely does it need to be addressed in front of lots of people. But the second I get a chance to send you a text and say, can we talk? The second I get a chance to phone you or the second I get a chance to email you, say, hey, can we get together and talk about X, Y, and Z? And I don't let people avoid me. I will come and knock on your door. I will come and knock on your door because, I listen, I, I can't rest. Somebody's upset with me. I've done something or there's something between. Listen, I, we see each other too often. We gotta, I got to see you in small group and I got to see you over at restoration. I got to see you and we got to pretend like it, this, it takes too much work. I'm trying to clear my desk, not add more things to it. So I try to keep real short accounts. So very close to the, 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 the infraction, very close to the argument, very close to whatever with the conflict started, you and I will talk about it. You and I will talk about it. So we keep short accounts. The other thing that's absolutely important that you need to consider, we said this uh, almost a year ago when we talked about conflict as a whole message, we said we need to lean in to conflict. We need to lean in to conflict. And leaning in looks different from person to person. I'll explain that asterisk in a second. We need to lean in to conflict. And it's countercultural. It's not what we naturally do. Sometimes we want to withdraw. Sometimes we just want to pretend like something it never happened. But the Bible instructs us, history instructs us, that those that have the relationships intact and therefore have a great quality of life, they lean into conflict. They deal with stuff. 
You say, what does that look like? So my wife and I have a conflict, and I say, listen, honey, let's, I mean, I know we got some other things planned, but let's, have a, let's, let's put the kids in their room and let's talk about this. Well, no, it's just going to start a fight. Well, listen, it's going to start a fight today or it's going to start a fight tomorrow. Or it's going to start two or three fights along the way. It's going to complicate everything else that's going to happen between now and when we talk about this. I'm initiating, let's lean into this. Let's talk about it right now. I mean, let's really talk about it. Let's really talk about it. Let's let this fruit of the Spirit do its work in our hearts. Give us that love, that joy, that peace, that, that self-control, that gentleness, that meekness, right? We'll mean what we say and we'll say what we mean, but we've got to talk about this real deal right now. What did I do? I often ask my wife, what are you mad about? And that's, by the way, is the wrong tone. That's the wrong way to say it. I often say, what are you, what's wrong with you, woman? You mad about now. You know, that never works. Throw that away. What I say is, hey, what's the matter? I, I notice, I mean, you're kind of quiet over here. What's the matter? And she'll say often, oh, nothing. It's always, it's never. It, listen, here's, here's the trick. Here's, here's, here's the way you measure this. When I ask my wife what's wrong and there's nothing wrong, she asks me, why do you think there's something wrong? If she answers anything other than that, there's something wrong. Oh, why, why do you think there's something wrong? I mean, oh. Never mind, I'm just checking. And I go before that, I create a problem. <laughs> but when I find out that there's something wrong, I want to talk about it right away. Why? We share a bed. We share a house. We share a space. We share kids. And it's foolish for me to let that stretch out for longer than it has to. I want to lean into that thing. I want to be thoughtful, but I want to lean into conflict. And whether it's with with my leaders or with my friends, with my extended family, I want to lean in. Now, there's an asterisk there, and that asterisk is there for people like me. I'm naturally aggressive in conversation. I have a, I have a lot of conversational stamina, right? And I think about things long and hard, long before I have to speak a word about it, so I'm usually ready to go. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to talk. And what happens is that I could be um, a little aggressive. If I'm not careful, if I don't let the fruit of the Spirit invade my life and in my thinking, I can be um, um, uh, thoughtless. Again, I'm speaking truth. I'm saying things as I, as I see them. I'm saying what I mean. I'm meaning what I say. But I'm leaning in too hard, and it's doing more harm than good. I'm saying, no, we've got to talk about this right now. You did this. You said this. Blah, blah, blah. I got the recording. I taped it. I'm going to play it back for you. For people like me, I need to do what? I need to lean back. Engage in a, engage in a conflict in a healthy way, I need, I need to lean back. And my wife would tell me, she won't use those words, but she said, you need to calm down. You need to lower your voice. You need to lean back. And some of you, I know some of you, you're wired this way, you need to lean back to healthily deal with the communication in a way that helps that relationship and doesn't hurt it, you need to lean back. And oftentimes it means closing your mouth and listening. Closing your mouth and thinking for a moment about what you're going to say. Closing your mouth and letting the other person speak a couple of words before you say something. It means tailoring your body language so that what, you're, what your body isn't saying is, could you go someplace away from me and be quiet? 
Sometimes we're sitting there, and you're like, okay. And what your body language is saying, if it could have an audible voice, is will you be quiet? I'm not interested at all in this. And part of leaning back means doing what you can to exercise that self-control. We can't get away from the self-control, can we? To be present and in the moment in that communication. To lean back. To lean back. I wish I had more time to explore those, but I want to give you one more tip under the umbrella of dealing with conflict, and that is something that I've learned recently to try to do, is to leave room for what you may not know. Leave some room when you're dealing with conflict for what you may not know. I was listening to a preacher on the radio uh, several weeks ago, and he was telling this story about um, this guy who was either a deacon or uh, on the board at, at this particular church that he went to. And he said, this guy used to be like, everybody used to like this guy, and he was very easy to get along with. But something, ha- something happened where this guy just became, he just became very um, negative. He became very critical, very hard to deal with. He was very, he always opposed everything that everybody said in the meeting. It was hard to get anything past this guy and and, and be productive in these meetings because this guy just became a bear to deal with. And what slowly began to happen is people began to treat him poorly. They began to distance themselves from him. And this guy just, he got progressively angry and hard to deal with. Well, they sort of found out that this guy um, sort of went into the hospital and discovered that he had a tumor on his brain. And this tumor, as it grew, it was affecting his mood. It was affecting how he interacted with people and all these sort of things. And the preacher, I'll never forget this. I will never forget this. He said, had I known one fact more about that man, I would have dealt with him completely differently. Doesn't mean that this guy wasn't a bear. Doesn't mean that he wasn't difficult. But had I known one fact more about the situation, it would have changed the the landscape, completely changed the landscape of how I interacted with that ailing man who was dying. Had I known one fact more, and as I lean in to conflict and as I lean back when it's appropriate, oftentimes I discover that there's so much that I didn't know. And there may not be much that I didn't know, but there's significant details that I don't know that completely change the landscape of what happened, why it happened, and who did it. Isn't that amazing how that works? So if you come to the table thinking you know all the facts, thinking the way you see it is the only way to see it, and you talk and you communicate from that way, you talk from the superior place, you've left no room for something else. You've left no room for there to be any facts or any issues that maybe you weren't aware of. Listen, that's foolish. And so often I've done that. I've done that with my leaders. I've done that at home in my marriage. I've done that with my extended family. And when I reflect on it, I've caused more harm than good. And I'm asking you today, when you deal with conflict, when you communicate with one another, it doesn't matter what the relationship is, do you leave room? Do you humble yourself enough to leave some room and say, hey, listen, I, don't, I may not know everything. Let me ask some clarifying questions. Let me ask for some understanding. Let me close my mouth and let somebody else speak for a change. Have I left room? Have you left room in your relationships, in your communication, particularly in conflict, for what you may not know? We're talking about communication. We're talking about healthy communication. We're talking about healthy interpersonal communication. Have you left room? Are you dealing with conflict in a healthy way? Here's the big picture today. The big picture is this. We talk about longevity in our relationships. 
If you want longevity, if you want there to be harmony, and worship team, you can come up. If you want there to be harmony, if you want things to go well, you want the quality of life to increase, listen, you gotta, de- you gotta communicate well. There has to be some successful conveyance and sharing of ideas, thoughts, feelings, and we cannot do that if we're not filled with God's spirit. We cannot do that in and of ourselves, in our own selfish way, in our own sinful way. We'll always pollute the conversation. We'll always destroy the fabric of the relationship. We will always mess it up. If you doubt that, just look behind you. Look at your history. Look at your marriage. Look at your relationship with your parents. Look at your relationship with your kids. In your own strength, with your best thinking, how have you fared? My guess is that you've done poorly if you're anything like me. I need the Spirit of God to invade my space, every corner of it. I need to be filled with the Spirit. I also need to be a person of integrity. I need to create a culture of candor with the people that share my space. I need to say what I mean, and I need to mean what I say every time. I need to train the people around me to expect honesty, truthfulness, each and every time. You know what the funny thing about is meaning what you say and saying what you mean, training the people around you to expect truth, is that either it endears them to you or they go away. At this stage of my life, I'm okay with either. People come in here and they don't want to hear the truth, they don't stick around very long because we preach God's word here. People come into my space and they want to be friends, they want to go deeper in relationship. Listen, you don't want truth and honesty. This is going to be a real uncomfortable relationship for you. And I don't say that boastfully, I don't say that pridefully, I don't say that smugly. But listen, I need people in my space that are going where I'm going. I need people in my space that I can trust to say what needs to be said when it needs to be said. And when you speak honestly, you either endear people to you, they draw near to you because they want more, or you get them out of your space. Either one is okay with me and it should be okay with you. And lastly, deal with conflict. Root out fear. Keep short accounts. Lean in when you're supposed to lean in. Lean back when you're supposed to lean back. Leave room for things that you don't understand. If you do these things, friend, this is proven to work. This is God-given. This is God-breathed. You want to improve the quality of your life? You want to be, as Christians should be, the best at everything they set their hearts to? Then you learn to communicate according to God's plan according to God's purpose. My time is spent. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for your word and for your truth. I thank you for the picture that it paints, the holistic picture that it paints, Lord, and that it gives us tools to be successful in life, to be who you called us to be, Lord, to do what you called us to do, to go where you called us to go, to be your hands and feet, to be a model, Lord, to live a life that people are jealous for. They say, oh, I want to be that way. I want to have that type of marriage. I want to have that type of relationship with my children. I want to be that type of boss or that type of manager or that type of leader. I want to be that way. I want to be that type of friend. I want to be that type of neighbor. I want to be that way, Lord. Would our lives be something that people aspire to? And Lord, we know we can't fix our relationships. We can't improve our quality of life if we don't deal with the communication, the things that we say, the words that we say, the actions that we do, all the communicate to other people. Lord, we can't change any of that unless we deal with the way we talk, the way we communicate. Would you come, Lord, and you change us by your power, by your spirit? Would you make us new? Would you transform us, Lord? Would you come in and move our stuff out and move your stuff in, Lord? And as you do that, we'll continue to give you glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.